Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach for ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kind of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today we're going to talk about how venture capital funding is fueling startups in not only Silicon Valley, but across the world. And we have a great guest who's at the center of it all. I'll introduce him. Dan Scheinman became an investor in technology companies and a sought-after startup advisor after practicing law and then serving in a range of leadership positions over 18 years at Cisco Systems. He was the very first angel investor to write a check to Zoom, so you can say his instincts for picking winners is proven, to say the least. And we're really excited to talk to you today, Dan. Thank you, Jackie and Rob. An honor to be here. I think it would be great to kick things off by explaining what we mean when we say angel investing. Can you define it for our listeners so they understand? Sure. Angel investing really is the first check into companies. In general, in Silicon Valley, most of the famous institutions like Sequoia Capital or Andreessen Horowitz tend to, you know, their core spot is investing a little later when there's more metrics and momentum in the business. But recently there has, in the last certainly 10 years, there's been a trend of individuals who have stepped in and tried to fund the first motion of companies. And so that really is what angel investing is. It's the initial seed capital to get founders going on their journey. And a lot of startups find it more appealing than other more predatory forms of funding. Is that right? Well, yes and no. It's usually that startups turn to angel investing because it's the best source for early stage funding. And what you hopefully get are people who've done it before and get know-how and access to the network of the investor to help solve early stage problems. So usually for most people, it's either friends and family, quite frankly, or it's professional angel investors where they get their first checks. You know, Dan, I know angel investing maybe 10 or 15 years ago was not only smaller, but it tended to be, it tended to be individual angels. Has, that, has the industry, if you will, if you want to call it that, or a sub-segment of the industry, has it evolved in a different way? It's unbelievable. And, and eight years ago or 10 years ago when, when I really got started, it really was individuals. And there were just like people who had made money and had built companies who really wanted to give back into the ecosystem were doing it. Since then, what's happened has been there has been an institutionalization of angel funding. And we have seen an explosion of funds probably well north of 500 and maybe more, targeting the early stage space. So now I would say that probably 75% of the time I'm seeing people who have a firm as an angel fund who are actually making the first investments. And 25% of the time it's people like me who are using our checking account to do it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm sure at one level that's nice for the ecosystem, but it maybe makes it harder for you since there's more competition for the deals you want. Yes. But actually, I think it's good for the entrepreneurs that there is more competition. Mm -hmm. And certainly what we have seen in the last five years has been a general rise in valuations, which is good for the early founders because they take less dilution in the in the early rounds. And there's a, a lot of capital available, which is also generally good for the for the early founders. So uh, yes, it's more competitive for people like me, but hey, also means I got to get better, right? And that's good too, right? 
I was reading an interview you did about your early investment in Zoom. As I mentioned in the intro, you were the first person to invest in the company nine years ago or so. And you said, we had planned that video would run the world at some point, but we didn't plan for it to happen over a few months in 2020. And overall, are you seeing an acceleration of startups that are trying to help fill these new needs we're seeing because of COVID? No question. COVID has certainly changed the landscape and the rise of at a 50,000 foot level, the rise of cloud, where everything is now in the cloud and, and services are cloud-based, plus the rise of this remote workforce and the rise of video have created an incredible number of opportunities. And, you know, I'm starting to see just it, it, what went from, yeah, in the future, this will happen is now the future is now and we've got to move fast and there's fear of missing out. There have been just incredible investment to things like online events uh, has become very popular. There's a company that achieved a multi-billion dollar valuation really overnight uh, in that space. And, and I think, you know, I think we're seeing that people really do now believe that the cloud and remote work, these are all things that are going to be fundamental going forward. You know, one of the things that's strange, we, we interviewed uh, Nick Bloom at, at Stanford recently, early on in the COVID uh, crisis, and he was talking about his at models and estimates of restructuring. And, you know, what's funny about that, when you talk to tech people or tech policy people, they always say, well, you know, it's the technology that drives these things. And when the technology gets mature enough, it'll, it'll be adopted. Here, it's one of those things where it was much more about social factors, because the technology was there. It might not have been exactly where we wanted it, but you know, it was a chicken or anything. I wasn't going to stay home every day and do video calls when people were downtown, even though I could, because they didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. But now there's a whole new norm. So that, to me, is really fascinating. It's the norms of change that then open up and allow these technologies to really gain and take off and then innovate, as you talked about with this new firm you mentioned. And I think this is one of the things the founder of Zoom, the great Eric Yuan, has said is his goal is always to make a video meeting better than an in-person meeting over time. And what I've seen is, in a lot of ways, the reason we like to do in-person is it gives us a chance to really get to know people and see the body language. But sometimes it, those meetings are artificial because you put on your battle armor, you got your suit on, you know, you show up. And I've certainly seen a more relaxed side of people around video, and sometimes I think I get to know people a little bit better, you know, doing it video only. It's, it, it certainly hasn't slowed my investing pace. It hasn't, it's, it's been, I think, quite frankly, a huge net positive for me. I kind of feel the same way. I mean, just even within our team at ITIF, I see people in ways I wouldn't have seen them because, you know, Jackie and I work together in an office, but now I see Jackie's dog and uh, I see her daughter and, and she sees, you know, other things about my life. And I think that's, I think people are able to see each other in a more, you know, full way, if you will. And, and that I think builds and strong and strengthens relationships. I completely agree. And I've, I, I have seen that it's been in some ways easier for me to get to know founders in this methodology than sitting in a coffee shop and trying to figure each other out. I never thought of it that way, but you're totally right. We seem to collaborate more and on a different level, which has been really productive for us, at least at ITIF. And actually, uh, although it's very hard to measure productivity inside companies, it's an art still, not a science. But my CEOs in general are reporting increased productivity uh, in this era, in part because the lack of commute. In some places, you are probably 
you know, an hour and a half to two hours on the road. And that goes away and that's led to increased productivity. Um, particularly, if, I mean, if you have young children, then I think I'm, do, I'm doubtful there's increased productivity. But if you don't have young children, then I, I believe <laughs> there is, uh, there's an opportunity for increased productivity. Well, there are a lot of startups that are occupying my five-year-old while I do things like podcast. So I'm grateful for them too. Amen. <laughs> so is the Silicon Valley innovation ecosystem, is it still robust or have challenges from other countries coupled with kind of the high cost of the Bay Area, maybe the focus of VC more on, or VC funding more on software and apps? Are, are, are there new challenges that you're seeing? So Jackie... I could go on for an hour on that question. So I'm going to try and be concise. Um, <laughs> yes, is the, at a thousand foot level, it's, it's, it's the challenges and the opportunities. There's new challenges and there's new opportunities. The challenge clearly is the Bay Area has become a very high cost location. And the other thing has been that with the changes to the immigration stuff going on, it's harder also to get people to come to the Bay Area, which actually is, is a problem. Now, the opportunity is, I've long believed, why should we in Silicon Valley have all the fun? This should be a national thing. And what we really are doing here is, quite frankly, it's the 21st century manufacturing. We're building products, and there's no reason it should only be done in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think increasingly we are seeing a, diversif a geographic diversification, right? And I think that is a good thing. We're seeing venture funds spring up outside of here. We are seeing companies all over the U.S. Um, as a challenge, I do think that the immigration situation has led to some talented engineers staying home. And what I think the general public doesn't realize is we are dependent on a very, very small number of engineers, right? Um, I always say, you know, Andy Bechtelsheim, who the founder of Arista and Sun and was the first check in Google, right? He could have stayed in Germany, but he didn't. He wanted to come here, right? And if, if Andy didn't come here, a lot of things might not have happened if he had stayed in Germany, right? And we want the Andy Bechtelsheims to come here. And in general, what is it that first attracts them here? It's the education. And we should be taking all these folks who show up and who are getting advanced degrees in scientific subjects. And, you know, I'm stealing this from John Doerr, but we should hand them a green card along with their diploma, right? This, because, and, and the truth is we don't know which one is going to be Andy and which one is going to not, but we can't miss. If you miss on the one Andy, you're sending entire industries back to other countries. So I do think um, India and China have made enormous progress and are continuing to make enormous progress. And again, I think it's good. I, want, I don't want technology only to be, you know, in one relatively small locale. It's good that we have competition and we move forward. And it creates new markets as well. But for the, from a United States perspective, it is a little bit worrisome, you know, what's been going on over the last several years. And I do worry about, you know, over-dependence or the situation in California causing some issues. We did a, a report a few years ago for the Smith Richardson Foundation where their board asked us if we would look at what was the demographic makeup of the most important uh, inventors or innovators in the U.S. And so we looked at who were the people who were filing triadic patents and also winning R&D 100 awards. And uh, we had, you know, looked at 
we got over a thousand to respond. What's their gender? What's their what's what's their national background? What's their race? Forty four percent of them, or something like that, were first or second generation immigrants. Thirty three percent were first generation immigrants. Way higher than the lo- number or rate of gener- of first generation immigrants. And these were making the most important innovations. These were like the best of the best. So couldn't agree with you more that that's a real opportunity and challenge. But at the same time, one of the reasons they come here is our universities. But now, according to the work we've done, we rank uh, 24th in funding our universities as a share of GDP, uh, university R&D. And so we've got some real work to do. But Rob, I'm not sure that that necessarily, I think think actually what's going to hurt us more in the short term is the immigration. So if we're not letting people in, or we make it difficult, or other countries make it easier to choose to go there. Sure. That, to me, is the bigger short-term problem. Um, look, the funding stuff is always it's always problematic for universities. That's the definition of universities, problematic getting funding, right? But there's enough people in the United States who are willing to fund innovation, it seems, that I think that's not the number one issue. Uh, I'm more worried about, you know, do people choose to come to the U.S.? And we want brilliant people choosing the U.S. I was talking to... Uh... Minister Baines, who's the Minister of Commerce and Innovation up in the Canadian government for Prime Minister Trudeau, and they've instituted a program up there, a 30-day STEM visa. Right. You apply there, and within 30 days, you're a permanent resident. You imagine that? Imagine, right? And we, when you look at the graduate science programs in the United States, particularly in technology, they're overwhelmingly populated with foreign-born people. And so we have two choices. Either somehow we create demand for U.S. technical people to go to graduate school and do that, which is, I mean, a long-term process, or we have got to get more aggressive with regard to immigration, and we've got to incent and encourage the best and the brightest to come here. They want to come here. They believe in the brand of the U.S., and we need to make sure that we don't disincent them from coming. Jackie and I, once we, we, we did a project for the house architect, uh, he was doing a project on what, how should the house of Congress, the house of representatives use technology in the future. And so we did a number of trips around the country with some of the house leading staff, the CIO and the like. And I always remember this trip to Carnegie Mellon where we visited a lab and it was doing facial recognition for the army at, at a distance, like 20 feet or whatever. And I'm looking around, I'm looking around, I'm going, they don't look like they're an American. They look like they're, you know, foreign student, foreign student. Finally, there's one woman there and I asked her, she looked like she might be American. No, she was from Eastern Europe. Not a single person in that PhD lab was an American and nothing wrong with that, but we should be keeping those people. Right. And the, and the reality is, is that if you go into the top universities in the United States, you would repeat that experience. It's in general, uh, one number I saw was that north of 70% of PhD in engineering and computer science are born outside the U.S. Again, I, I really, this is, to me, this has been, this is the number one opportunity for the U.S. to compete, is we have the better brand, we have better access to capital, we have less barriers to immigrants raising money. In fact, it's considered cool. And so I really think we need to resolve the immigration issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think not to be partisan because we're not, uh, but I do think the odds of that are better uh, under a Biden administration. I think there'll be a push for some immigration reform and and I think high skill will be will likely be a, a strong component of that. 
Hey, um, Dan, I want to switch gears a little bit and going back to the, the issue of VC funding. You know, for a while there, I don't know, like 10 years ago, you'd seen this decline in early stage. It was much more later mezzanine, third stage, you know, and it was it was kind of troubling. And then in, in recent years, you've had all, we, we just had a piece, um, uh, a thing in our program we call Monopoly Myths. And one of the myths is that there are all these firms out there with what are called kill zones and, uh, you know, the big Googles of the world killing all this innovation. And one of the graphs we had in there was just the, the really rapid growth of, of, of angel zero first stage, you know, amazing growth over the last 10 years. And you compare it to the 10 years before that, which suggests there's a lot of, op- maybe they're not in search, but there's a lot of opportunities there. Can you sort of t- say a little bit more about that? What does that imply? Uh, why is it happening? Going to keep going? Yes. So, um, at, again, at a 50,000-foot level, what's happened is the cost of innovation and doing a startup has gone down radically in this age. So back when I started in the dark ages of the last century, when we were still in horse and buggies, um, most of the innovation was around hardware products. And quite frankly, it was around semiconductors. And semiconductors are hard to build, expensive to build, tricky to build, and you have to wait two years to know if you've actually built it correctly, right? Today, for a fraction of those costs, you're able to get in market in months and to be relatively capital efficient. Plus, the second thing is we are in the largest transition since client server happened in the last century, uh, in the transition to cloud. And primarily, that's impacting a lot of things that companies used to build themselves and now are willing to outsource to vendors who are able to do it and not only help the companies save money, but also have better access to data. Um, So the ability to have cheaper startups that can uh, scale much faster, it, it has attracted a lot of capital. And so again, we can argue whether now there's the pendulum has swung too far and there's too much capital in early stage. Um, but it, it has definitely, there is a lot of capital in early stage. The other thing I think is, quite frankly, I mean, it's unbelievably impressive what the A-round institutions in Silicon Valley have done. I mean, quite frankly, the fact that Sequoia has been a market leader for you know 30 or 40 years in a partnership of people, and the people have changed, it's, it's, it's an amazing feat of, of management. And similarly, there's other funds that have done incredible things. So I think a lot of folks have been leery that there's a market opportunity in those places because competing with those funds who have built these systems and, and institutions and products, it's hard. But at early stage, it was chaotic. It was, it was, it was, you know, it was Andy Bechtelsheim running around writing checks. Like he wrote the first check to Google. It was me. It was somebody, it was other people, right? Ram Shiram and others, right? And, and when people started to realize, hey, early is not that, in a world where you don't need that much capital, you don't get diluted as much as you used to when you're building semiconductors. Early is a place where you can make a lot of money if you're prepared to wait for a long time. And so there has, there has now become uh, a lot of interest in early stage. So a lot of folks in Silicon Valley tend to discount the role of the federal government in the U.S. innovation system, but historically it's really played a big role, including in Silicon Valley. Would you agree with that? I would. Uh, I'm a veteran at this point in my career, and I saw the federal government have a couple of very positive impacts on Silicon Valley. First, as a funder through DARPA and other things, where the government was actually an early pioneer in funding innovation. 
But equally important has been the role of the government as a customer. When I first started in Silicon Valley, the government was one of the most important early customers for startup businesses. And that allowed the government to have early access to technology, but also to have a lot of uh, ability to comment and control the roadmap of these companies going forward. Uh, now, of course, over time, what, what happens is the commercial sector comes in and the government has less of a role even when it's just a customer. But I, I think the government still has an important role to play, particularly where it's aggressive on earlier new technologies and it can help make markets. One final fun question. What's the technology you're most excited about right now? Well, I think uh, 2021 and beyond, the, the big issue is going to be security and how we become more secure and we move from installing bits and pieces of software to attempt to solve little problems to creating more secure platforms. And of course, all the issues around security and privacy. Uh, but I, I think that I think that we as an industry are hopefully going to make you and enterprise customers much more secure going forward. And I think that's one of the more important things going forward. Well, thank you, Dan, for being here. We appreciate all your patience with our technical issues. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon, I hope. An honor to be here. Thank you very much, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, which is itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 